Hey guys, just gonna dive on in today, as it were. Uh, that is from American Dad. If you're not aware of what American Dad is, just become aware of it and watch as much of it as you can. I suggest the later seasons, but anything uh, that's heavy on the uh, director Bullock, Patrick Stewart character, is phenomenal. Uh, everything that Roger does is also spectacular. Great show. Um, so, I mentioned a lot of God of War stuff last time. I'm not going to waste too much time on that today, but it obviously progressed further in the game, and I just want to reiterate how much fun this fucking game is. So, they've put in so much homework, so much just factual, historical, mythological illusions and references and, and character ideas and inclusions. It's just so well planned out, so well adapted, and just... If you're a fan of lore, and when I was a kid, my brother and I, I mean, since the age of mythology, we've been fascinated by it. And it's, it's very interesting. And I remember going to the library as a kid, I mean, for a lot of different things in history, but especially the whole, the Acer Pantheon as a, as a whole, the Norse gods. Really cool stuff. And the game really does a great job of that. I think in the game, much the same way that God of War had been doing previously, they really have... <laughs> excuse me, they have interpretive and pretty uh, larger-than-life representations of the gods, but especially by the God of War 3, you were kind of never really seeing something that surprising. It was, it was, the scale was always overwhelming, and there was always something really very cool about them, but the Norse one is just, everything is almost fresh and new, and there's kind of a different... Uh, I think there's a, almost a different tier of creativity that's gone into it because the other one is three games worth of, of a mythology that I think as a whole, also maybe people are more familiar with, the Greek gods. I, I don't know. We can share an opinion if you, if you think it's not the case, but I would imagine it is. Um, yeah, there's a lot on Netflix lately. I mean, there's a really good bunch of uploads. Um there's The Woman in Black 2. I think I mentioned that one last time. I've been a little too busy to watch a ton of movies, but um, Arrested Development is something that I've been like trying to catch up on whenever I can. Really funny. Um, it's one of those shows that I came into like way late. So, obviously, all the, you know, the, the zeitgeist is that people are pretty aware of this show. But I think it's hilarious. I think... Um, Every time I see the caged wisdom segments, they just that makes me laugh. That's pretty funny, especially because he's in Hellboy. I don't know why. If for some reason, there's that character association where um, I imagine everyone gets this in some way, shape, or form. So when you think of an actor or an actress or a singer, you think of them from like one very specific role, and that's probably your first introduction to them or your most prominent introduction with them. Um, with him, uh, what's his name? Jeffrey Tambor, but I'm not sure. It was as um, director, or deputy director, whatever he was in Hellboy. And so, I don't know, for some reason, it's, it's not a negative thing, but that's just always what I picture him as. It's hilarious. Um, Hellboy 1 was fantastic. I watched that a couple days ago. That's one of the movies I was just sort of drop into. Um, I think Hellboy 2 was was actually better and it was making me think about a lot of sequels that are kind of better than their predecessor 
and uh, I think Terminator comes to mind. Um, I wouldn't say um, Jurassic Park at all, but I think the argument can apparently be made. I haven't seen the film yet, but supposedly this new one is better than Jurassic World, which is, we all know, set to be a trilogy unto itself. So that, you know, um, Empire Strikes Back, uh, as I will say to reference myself previously, The Clone Wars over... (laughs) <laughs> the Phantom Menace, uh, The Dark Knight over Batman Begins. Uh, I suppose Iron Man doesn't really get on the list. It's a trend that happens. So happens. Uh, well, thinking about the Iron Man movies, and <laughs> it's really a downhill slope from number one. Three. I remember walking out of the theater and being so. I don't know. I felt entertained, I guess, but not satisfied for what I wanted out of a Marvel movie. Especially because by that time the Avengers had been a thing and we were delivered more on like Iron Man's emotional struggle than what has been going on with the Avengers, which is clearly what everybody wants to hear more of. Yeah, it's been a busy week. I feel like it's going to be less of a constructed dialogue today. Not that it ever really is a script I got going on. I just sort of have some topics I think might be pertinent. Now I'm just kind of free-balling it a little bit. It's been a busy week. Um, I don't know. It was pride in the city I'm in. I don't know if your city has that. If it does, that's cool. Um, I have a close family member, my brother, who's uh, LGBTQ. I'm sure there's more to the acronym. He's gay, so I don't really need the acronym. But um, I've always thought that's very important for people to be able to marry who they want to marry. I don't really see why the government should tell them not to, unless it's weird and it's like a horse or something. I mean, I guess don't, like, at me if you are part of some horse-marrying community and that upsets you, but maybe rethink that. And also, if you can give me a solid, like, non-gross sexual reason, I would consider the horse marriage, I guess. But it's not for the kind of sketchy reasons that I would see on, like, an episode of Maury that makes the imagination kind of cringe. But otherwise, you know, support the pride movement. If there's an event or something near your house or a parade, go out. You know, stuff's nice. The Toronto one is um, a lot of fun. It's it's become huge. Uh, it was actually embroiled in controversy, I think, like two years ago because... The Black Lives Matter movement um, hosted a protest, and I don't really want to get too political. I'm not really a fan of that movement, obviously. Um, (laughs) I think, I don't know how people can be, to be honest, after some of the stuff they pulled. But anyway, um, so they made a list of demands, basically, and held it at sit-in gunpoint, gunpoint in quotations. There were no guns, obviously. They had like a sit-in, and they made the city of Toronto sign some ludicrous demands, which is something <laughs> you don't want to set the example that you can do. But for some reason, the person had the idea, like, oh, I'll just sign it and revoke it later. But he, I, I don't know, whisked out, and then they wound up like actually processing these demands somewhat. So the police were asked not to show up. And if you've ever been to not just the Toronto Pride Parade, but any major Pride Parade, you almost always have the local police or the municipal, federal, state, whatever. You have these groups there because that's super important. You know, like you want not only to know that there's 
your representation of that community in the police force, but also those police officers themselves want to feel like they can be expressive in their job and, and not have to be choosing between one or two. And the demand was made that they can't show up to the parade. I mean, they can be there in a police piece, um, maintaining of the, well, the word escaping me right now. Peacekeeping is, is what I intended. They can be there in a peacekeeping manner as police can be, but they're not invited to be there as like an organization. And that's huge slap in the face. And for some reason that's still the case. So when you go there, it's tense and it's really uncomfortable in the stain of it. But that's me getting sidetracked and a little bit of a personal issue, but definitely go out, do pride stuff, uh, do whatever you're comfortable with. Obviously, I mean, some events maybe are not for the same age or some specific cases for the faint of heart, but have a good time. It is a good time. It's lots of music that, to be honest, I listen to anyway. I got like a playlist that's stuck in the eighties. And so, I mean, it's, it's always a good time. Um, in terms of games though, I've been digging up my um, my Game Boy SP, which, I'm going to be honest, I think is the superior Game Boy console. Game Boy SP, for anyone that doesn't know, is a Game Boy that looks like a tiny sort of foldable laptop type device, and it is the last model that predates the DS. So the Game Boy SP has one screen. It's a compact, smooth, really well-designed little f- open book Game Boy with a screen and uh, the joystick on the left-hand side. A and B button on the right and shoulder buttons. And the second generation, or I don't know specifically what number, but it was not the first. The generation that I had had perfectly backlit screens. Not bottom lit with those cheap lights at the bottom. Not like a fucking worm light like the days of old. This one had like laptop quality backlighting and a button that you could press to make it brighter or darker. Some mode you could switch between. This thing was my life, man. I railed on this thing for my entire childhood. Like... This was my, I had the Game Boy Pocket and Color previously, and then this was, it changed everything. I never even moved on. I never had a DS. It's perfect. I had Pokemon Leaf Green, and I've, uh, with the combination of, like, the help of friends and aggressive trading in school, I managed to way surpass what they give you. I had, like, 400-something Pokemon from three different regions. Because in that one, it's sort of, it lets you collect, um three different Pokedexes worth that just don't really offer you more than the Seti Islands. But that's actually something I wanted to go into as well. Uh, um, Pokemon Leaf Green. I'm, I, I've done the, the, the homework on this one. It's not just my raw opinion, but obviously I'm a little biased. Pokemon Leaf Green is, is in my opinion, the best Pokemon game. Because you have a story that starts in Pallet Town that is the style of the classic quintessential Pokemon Red and Blue. You have that journey, that battling for gym, uh, for badges against gyms, <laughs> against dudes named Jim. You have to battle through these these opponents, and then you reach the elite four. You hit iconic locations like Pallet, or uh, sorry, like Pewter Town, Cerulean City, Vermilion, like the ghosts in, in Lavender Town and Tavern, uh, <laughs> Lavender Tower, in Lavender Tower. Um, it's just an absolutely fantastic ride. It's the classic, nostalgic Pokemon experience. So you get that, but then you beat it. And instead of just wandering aimlessly and fucking refighting the Elite Four because there's nothing else to do, you're given a device called the VS Tracker, which lets you stand near previously beaten NPCs, and it refreshes them so you can battle them again. So there is no end to how much battling you can do, and that's important because that is directly what the replay factor comes from. So you can 
hit up and battle anyone in the game from the Elite Four, obviously, which is institutionalized in it, but also just any NPC on the ground. You can collect Pokemon from pretty much any game before the DS ones, and including some DS ones if you do some some magic Nintendo hackery. I don't know. There's a way to do it online. I haven't figured it out, but I want to port all my DS stuff in and like destroy my wife at Pokemon because she's got like three of those. <coughs> excuse me, three of the DS ones going on. And I don't really want to start and have to catch up. I got like a horde of monsters in my leaf green. I have like, I think every rare up to that point and every starter for four generations for every element. I'm not going to go into it. Everyone can have, you know, that quote, show me your Pokemans. Everyone can can go to it at length. So I'm not going to go too deep, but I got extensive. I mean, categorized them by name in the boxes. So Pokemon Leaf Green gives you the old experience. It gives you something new. When you go to the Sevi Islands and you get seven very small but very unique um, mini-adventure experiences wherein you either get to explore a cave and catch, like, two new ice Pokemon or go through a mountain and catch, like, two new rock Pokemon. But in experiencing all that <clears throat> and in being shown that there are more Pokemon out there, you're now aware that if you trade outside of that normal limitation, there there's the ability to keep them and catalog them. So it was really cool. I, I remember going to after school. Sometimes we had, like, a Pokemon meetup, and there were guys playing... A, a generation before and a generation after, and it was cool to be able to interchange them like that. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. In terms of Game Boy SP games and reviews, I'm not 100% on a lot of them. I think I need to replay them to give uh, an opinion, but the classics I have, I mean, I have the Mario Kart one, which I beat six ways from Sunday, which holds up and is always great. I took that uh, on the plane to Cuba. <coughs> um... I have an X-Men game, X-Men Apocalypse, and it's a side-scrolling, terrible controls, Game Boy beat-em-up, so that one was always pretty fun. Good characters you could choose. Uh, I think I'm going to have to replay that. And I have a Rayman, like the original, I don't know if it's the original, I'm not really up to date on the Rayman mythology, but I have that game. I'm going to give a lot of these a replay, I'm going to get back to you on that. But I got more... Uh, there was also... Uh, some Batman news that I wanted to weigh in on. I'd heard that Andy Serkis was interested in playing a DC role, specifically the Penguin, and I think not only would that kick ass, but who cares if it's the Penguin? Get this man involved in that universe. Everything he does is fantastic. I mean, some is less known, maybe, but everything is, is fucking quality, either acting or motion capture acting, just... Dude's awesome. I mean, Ulysses Claw was is one of my favorite characters in, in Marvel, to be honest. So, R.I.P. But also, good job to him. And if he wants to be a villain, especially if they play it that Arkham way and he's got that sort of London gangster attitude, or they do the Gotham-inspired, like the TV show Gotham, like uh, pulled himself up from the bootstraps, like self-made, I don't know, Lithuanian immigrant... <laughs> crime boss. Any way they spin it will be great. I mean, he is the capability. I'd been hoping to do some more writing in my spare time, and I used to in enjoy a lot of, I don't want to call it fan fiction writing, but I suppose that's what it is, just um, written scripts for comic books. I have a zero artistic ability, so I painted like three paintings, two paintings, two, and they were well received by my wife, but 
I love her. I think that's a bit of a biased opinion. But I used to enjoy sort of writing the, you know, rough outline of a story for a comic. So I think what the DCUO needs and it needs to adapt immediately is is the Red Hood. Because I'm personally a big fan of Jason Dodd. I have the Red Hood bat symbol tattooed on my arm, actually, amidst another bat symbol. But I think the Red Hood is, is one of Batman's greatest foils and one of Gratman. <laughs> Grat- Grabman. That's hilarious. I think uh, I'd like to include Grabman as a villain in these. But Jason Dodd's one of Batman's greatest foils and one of Batman's greatest fails because I think that he gives Batman a living reminder of something that he failed to, I don't know, failed to prevent. And I think as a character, Jason Todd is a perfect counter to Batman because we see a lot of very similar adversaries. We see people who can match him intellectually. We see, I mean, Luthor, uh, Deathstroke at times. Um, I'll keep it a short and, and modest list. Yes, those two. I could go into more, but we see characters that can beat him up, or rather hold their own on a physical level with him, obviously Bane and Killer Croc and Deadshot and, and people who can spar with him. And we see people who have the ability to fight him on a cerebral level as a detective and... We see that in Raz. I'm a Raz Al Ghul man for pronunciation, so I apologize if that offends your race sensibilities. But moving forward, I'm not going to do both. Raz Al Ghul, um, Vandal Savage. I want to say uh, Zod, but also Luther, I guess. There is no villain who as elegantly and as organically presents Batman with a challenge in all those fields. The Red Hood is the perfect adversary because he is Batman in the skill set, but he's more dangerous because of the, the lack of control and the violence. And that doesn't necessarily make him better or more dangerous or more apt than Batman. But I will always advocate that Batman will be the victor in a, in a match against nearly anybody, unless we're talking circumstances. But the Red Hood presents someone who is that, that equal counterpart who will ambush you and fight with Batman's tactics and will know how to dig deep and will know how to make you unsafe and enter the Batcave. And <clears throat> personally... The reason I, I like him is not for his villainy. And I found that when I was reading uh, before the New 52, <laughs> back when that fanged skull is a logo, I didn't really like the character. I thought it was interesting, some of the risks they took in that team up with that dollface girl. I think I mentioned before, but wasn't a fan. I think what they've done now is fantastic. And having him as a man out for redemption is, is both a much more lovable and relatable character trait, especially for myself. I've always really respected that about the character. And I think you have someone who's carved their niche in the Bat family as a modern streetwise gun-using 
character, but no longer someone who's taking lives with those guns, someone who's using that weapon for good. So he's he's very worthwhile, and the cinematic universe is not going to be able to get him until we have a movie that establishes that. And I think you've obviously shown Robin's dead, and there's been a lot of back and forth um, because in, in Suicide Squad and Man versus <laughs> say Man versus Steel. Um, in, in Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman, and Suicide Squad, there's whatever various conflicting canons, but some tour guide or something at Warner Brothers had let something slip about the costume. I'm not sure what, what is canon anymore, but my assumption is that's a dead Robin. <clears throat> dead Robins are usually Jason. So... If it's not, it's going to kind of be a flashback for a lot of the movie anyway. And I know a lot of people aren't fans of that, but I feel like it should be a fresh take because if you have something similar to Arkham Knight, people are just going to be off-put. If you have something similar to Under the Red Hood, the animated series, people will be off-put. Both of those are amazing. The Jen, uh, Jensen Eccles, as the voice for Red Hood, was the voice that I would hear in my head for comics for a while, so he did amazing on that. But I want to see a Red Hood movie that is dark and not because DC always needs to be dark I mean dark in a gothic draconian vampire kind of way I want it to be Red Hood being taken after Death's visit with him as a corpse being taken by Talia and the League not even the League of Assassins um, a very small contingent faction that's loyal to her and I think it'll be like Bronze Tiger and Characters that are going to obviously show up later and be significant to him. And they take this body and they bring him to a Lazarus pit. And when he comes out, he's fucking, a, not a demon, but he's demonically gifted. He's swole. He's fucking super huge. He's got like that white part of his hair. Like we can do red or um, black hair. I think the red would be cool for the demon thing. But if you want to keep the black hair for, I don't know, that was always a thing, he dyed his hair and they added that because they didn't want to have a red-haired Robin, but I think nowadays actually in the cinematic universe that might be great, we might have time for that, people might even want that, so I don't know, we'll do something like he will look demonic and it'll be like a helmet that he's wearing, but the helmet is almost alien and, and almost, again, like ethereal, so... I think what happens is he was was brought back, like he's thrown in the in the tub, and it's not necessarily a standard Lazarus pit because Roz had all the other ones guarded. So this was one that like it's I don't know Talia makes a throwaway line about how it's like a little darker or a little redder or something, and like he comes out and he has weapons and shit. So it's obviously like bestowed gifts upon him, and we find out later that that one's not necessarily like a Lazarus pit as much as some connective thing to the ethereal energy and we can have um we can have it holler out to his um training as a what are they called? The un unknown or something? Uh in the Red Hood um comic series, the New Fifty Two one, he studies with a group of monks under a woman named like Durma? Durga? 
Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I love that series too. It's been a while. I got to reread that. All right, I'm going to talk about that next time. But for now, he comes out, he's demonized, and he encounters Talia, and they're all sort of gathered around him. And what's going to happen is it's clearly going to show like it's him, but he's going to look very different. And I want to be able to show people that aren't too familiar with the lore that it maybe is not going to go exactly the way they think. I mean, hardline people will be like, oh, it's Jason. But throughout this battle, it will become apparent to Batman. But keeping in mind Batman is... is Batman has got to be a little bit more of a throw. So Batman does that whole, like, like, Alfred, put me on the floor. Put me on the third floor. Like, he has the thing for his voice, the modulator. <clears throat> the Christian Bale one was all like, like, <laughs> They said he's not afraid of you anymore. You know, like, it was very raspy, and just, I feel like, if you go with that sort of trope, it's not only going to sound like it has sounded before, it's just going to maybe sound like all the other ones. So I think the best thing would be, like, he has a modulator when he went in, but that, too, has somehow been enhanced with this, either like, alien tech, and I don't know, it's, like, built into the helmet, so he's he's addressing them, and Talia's like, oh, like... Like, oh, are you okay, Damien? He's standing there, and, like, he's flowing there with, like, some sort of, I don't know, modulated, improved version of his armor, and he's like, bring me the head of Batman. And then they're all like, oh, like, we're going to worship this guy as, like, the head of the League of Assassins. And I think uh, it'll be cool, because what I always liked in Under the Red Hood was they have an appearance of, of Ra's al Ghul not as an enemy, and I think... Roz will be the one to go to Batman and be like, Detective, like, they're coming after you. And Batman will have to mount some kind of a unified effort. I think Suicide Squad established that there's a lot of Gotham and uh, street-level criminals and characters. So there is likewise the, the same amount of heroes and characters. So there's no reason that you can't have... Uh, the introduction of Batwoman, of Batgirl, or even the spoiler if you want, of Oracle or Batgirl, of Nightwing, depending on, the, again, the lore of who it is that's dead and what we've come. Same with Tim and Damien. I think we'll need to tie uh, a string on for later, put that aside, because that's going to be a huge storyline. I want to really establish who Talia is. You need to have that organic scene where they fuck in a separate movie so that it's not like the same movie where you would lose the value if they bone and then suddenly there's a kid. Like I want that in a completely separate movie and then one day she comes with the baby so that surprise actually is there. But Batman rallies the family. You get cool, you know, one-off scenes like the DC animated movies always have of like characters like maybe Constantine is, is hoodwinking somebody in this, uh, in this bout. Maybe um, Aquaman lens like a I don't know flooding of a nearby pier discreetly and it like washes away <clears throat> enemies but every time Batman and the Red Hood sort of encounter each other it's like a like a Batman versus a lighter more vicious Batman and he's just wailing on him and Batman's like seeing that he's he's not going for those kills. He's, he's drawing it out for a very long time. And then he, you know, he Batman counters him and he knocks him off, <clears throat> knocks him off his guard and he throws Batarang like a very stylized way that we've 
we will have seen him do in a flashback. And then um, Jason instinctively dodges it in a way that we'll have seen him do in the flashback where it's meant to be like a team maneuver or like a team, like he throws, um, like he throws a table at him and Jason like jumps off a table. And so like he throws this table and Jason automatically knows what to do. And then he's like, like, I, Oh, you know, you know, I'm going to, you know, I don't know. It'll have some, like, I can't tell what kind of theme it'll be for the Batman one. If it'll be like a, that sort of, introspective Batman where he just stares at him and this will all happen in his head or he'll call it out but he'll be like you know I'd figure this out Jason and he's like Jason isn't the only one here and then it'll be you know it's kind of apparent that there's actually a demon there and so they battle like for a really long time and Batman goes all out and he like exposes <clears throat> Jason's face with like a super hard punch to the face with this gauntlet that he slips out the mask shatters like enough to see an eye and um on the gauntlet we'll have like a a second of visibility maybe when he pulls it out or from a certain angle where it's a symbol for nth metal i don't know what it is like an n or t or i don't know ask a thanagarian but i want that in there because nth metal disrupts uh psychic and magic and demonic presences so that'll be an explanation as to why it shatters it and so like you see for a moment his eyes go from like um, that red circle around them that he always has as a tribute to that comic, uh, the domino mask, but that red, like, Kaecilius type thing, but red, and not that gross, more like veiny. So he has that, like, a, almost a demonic domino mask there, and then disappears for a second, he's like, oh, you know, just do it, like, finish it, I don't need this, and then he's like, that maneuver, like, could it really be you? And he's like, um, there's not really a sword nearby, so I, I think he's either going to pull the sword out of his belt, or if a sword looks ridiculous, maybe it's just a combat knife, but I think there's going to be a combat knife that he sort of slowly unbuckled, and you see him kind of close his eyes, and then like lower the knife, and you're like, oh, he's not going to do it, and then Batman sort of has this realization he's about to speak, and then there's like the like squelching noise, and he's like, You were always too trusting, Bruce. And then like cuts vertically, and all the organs come out, and he's like, like, like sort of gasping, and he tips over. And then um, Jason's like sitting there, and there's like this remorse for a second, and then suddenly, like, I need this no more. And then, like, he, like, grasps at the skull and, like, it shatters. And then, like, the whole thing just crumbles and all these crystalline sort of alien armor pieces fall off. <clears throat> and in the center of it, there's, like, this um, ethereal sort of red crackling energy crystal. And he kind of takes it and sort of begins to kind of crush it a little bit. And then we see him taking a medical pack, and I mean, I didn't mean, you know, Batman's always like falling out, but he's been stabbed, and he sort of like wraps the bandage around him, and sprinkles that crystal thing on, and just lets it sit, and he just heals, and eventually, like, we find, uh, find that he wakes up, and Jason's gone, obviously, and there's like a note stabbed to the wall, and it sort of ends with 
Jason giving a, a monologue and sort of a not too cheesy in two thousands, but like a, an end of the movie. Well, my life turned out pretty good. Got a like internal dialogue. We're gonna find out near the end of it that he's either driving off to investigate like this raging fireball in the sky, or he's going to investigate like something that heavily leans towards Roy Harper. So. I don't know, man. This was just a rambling, um, just an idea I've been penning around for a while. In fact, it's been so long, I would say it was the better part of this afternoon. <laughs> so I was just falling in a way that we can get Red Hood into the DCUO and not have it be Arkham Knight, because that's what it will be, unfortunately. And I think uh, any direct comic-to-film adaptation will just be the animated film, which we already have, which is great, so... I really think something would be different to add that sort of demon flair in there, give it a chance to get some other characters like Constantine in on it. Um, give us that, Jason Todd, you know. As far as other stuff, uh, I'm currently trying to read All-Star Batman and Robin uh, Rebirth because I'm such a fan of the original one, but I've been busy, so my bad. I'll have to get up to date and <laughs> have that obligation to get up to date on Red Hood and the Outlaws, so... I will read up, and you guys, good luck out there. I will talk to you later.